This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 38 with Laura Klein. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. This time, I got a chance to chat with Laura Klein, author of Build Better Products and Lean UX for Startups. She's also an accomplished speaker and hosts her own podcast called What is Wrong with UX? Laura and I talked about the differences and similarities between UX, research, and product management, as well as how we can all get along. She has an impressive background and breadth of experience to share with us some keys to success in building better products and product teams. The Aurelius podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey, Laura. Hey, Zach. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How about yourself? I am, you know, grading on a curve, doing pretty well. (laughs) All things considered. So, you know, again, uh, this is not the first time we've had this in our new season, and I have to preface this with, if you're listening to this episode, you know, much later after the fact, this was recorded in 2020 during the time of the pandemic. So when we say all things considered and grading on a curve, I think, you know, we're all doing the best that we can. So if you're listening to this a year or two later, hopefully you are in the land of uh, fulfilled dreams and uh, being able to go and do whatever you want unrestricted. And you look back on this with uh, not triggers and um, post-traumatic stress, but rather fond memories of uh, that we got through it. So Cool. Well, Laura, I really appreciate you jumping on to chat with us about all things uh, UX, research, product, product management. For those who are listening to the episode and maybe have not heard of you, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure thing. Um, So I have been in tech since the mid-90s. I am a recovering engineer. And uh, for the last Oh, I don't know, 19, 20 years, I have been a UX designer and a product manager and UX researcher and all of those things, startups, big companies, my own thing. I uh, I wrote a couple books, um, one called Build Better Products and one called UX for Lean Startups. And um, right now I am teaching design. So that is me. Nice. Where are you teaching design, Laura? I am creating courses for the Interaction Design Foundation, which is a nonprofit devoted to making more UX designers at a very reasonable cost. So I'm a big fan of designing other designers. That's my thing every so often. Very cool. You know, I've heard that uh, that saying before, designing other designers. It's kind of fun. It's a, we recently spoke with Fred Beecher, who is senior, uh, I'm going to mess up his title up, but senior manager of experience design operations at Best Buy. And that's actually one of the things he's really passionate about, why he loves design ops and research ops is because as he said it, and I also love this quote, he brought it up in saying that like design ops for him was uh, design leadership without all the bullshit. So basically that a lot of that mentorship and making designers better, right? And it's in your case, designing designers is, is a really cool and fascinating topic. You also mentioned, of course, that you wrote a couple of books that were very popular and, uh, and really, really good. You know, part of the reason I wanted to chat with you is because you have a ton of experience across the spectrum of all things products, right? UX research recovering engineer, which I did not know. <laughs> That's also a fun way of putting that. It, you know, so you've you've seen a lot of things in this world we live in of making digital products. How do you feel like maybe your background as an engineer really led into some of your more recent work and even writing those books? My background as an engineer is what ended up getting me a job in UX, which is a little weird. 
I had started off very, very early in my career doing, you know, just figuring out what I want to do process. And I ended up doing a teeny bit of user research, just that I was, you know, an admin helping out on, you know, a team that happened to be doing user research. That's how I kind of learned that was a thing. Um, And then later on, I went on and became an engineer and mostly for doing front end stuff. And this was in the late nineties, you know, when the web was just kind of growing up and it was an exciting time. (laughs) So then a little later, I ended up getting a job at a small boutique consultancy where I sort of combined the fact that I could do a little bit of user research and I could help out with that. And then also the fact that I could do front end prototyping really quickly then, you know, because I I would go in and I would do the front end prototyping. And also I would go and I would take notes on user research, write up papers about it and, you know, like the write up the the decks and the, the reports. And then it turns out that there's this middle part between the doing the user research and the making the prototype, and that is apparently called design. <laughs> and, uh, they taught me that middle part, which was very kind of them. And then I worked there for a while. So that's how I got into, you know, it was called at the time interaction design and still is in some areas. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Actually, that reminds me of something fun I usually tell people is like, what. Well, when they asked me maybe how I got into stuff and I said, well, I graduated with a degree in multimedia design. <laughs> so that's what it was called whenever I had left my program. I think they had changed the name right as I was kind of finishing up, but uh, yeah. Producing a lot of CD-ROMs. That was actually the very thing. <laughs> no, it's funny you bring that up. When I was in high school and the reason I went to secondary education, post-secondary education to do that was because at the time I thought they were the coolest things ever. It was very interactive. You they know, were. It was kind of like rich media. In fairness, they were the coolest thing ever. I mean, the fact that they have now been supplanted by something that is even cooler does not change the fact that they were super cool. And they were also one of the reasons I got very into computers, so. Yeah, it was literally the reason I got into design. That's what I wanted to make. That changed quite a bit when the web hit, and I said, well, I kind of like this, and I think this is better, so we'll just do that. But anyway, we're not here to talk about me. I want to hear about you and... It's an interesting background. I don't think totally uncommon, right? Where somebody comes into UX and, and ends up doing very well, but they didn't actually start there because back then that wasn't the place to start. We didn't even really have a, a way to label it in that way. And so, you know, fast forward to a few years ago, building better products. Tell us a little bit more about that and that book that you wrote. What would you like to know about it specifically other than, you know, the fact that I wrote it as a follow-up to UX for Lean Startups because I, I, I specifically wanted something that was a little bit more hands-on when I first was talking to the publisher, Rosenfeld Media, about it, I was saying I almost wanted it to be workbook-like, and I wanted it to have lots of activities and things that actually came out of facilitating a lot of workshops and meetings and group work that happened after I wrote the first book. So what would happen is, you know, I wrote the first book, and then I would get called in to companies to come and consult, and, you know, we would do these sort of meetings and, and workshop sessions where we would be, you know, say, okay, let's work through your metrics and let's figure out your funnel and let's figure out, you know, something about your interface or whatever it was that they wanted to do. And what I found was that I would end up at the whiteboard and I would end up drawing some thing and we would end up going through some sort of exercise often that I just was like, okay, well, let's try this exercise. And I would kind of make something up on the fly and we would do it and see if it worked. And then, you know, it would or it wouldn't. And we'd iterate. And I, and I just found after doing that for a couple of years, I was drawing the same pictures an awful lot. (laughs) And I was doing a lot of the same activities because, you know, the ones that work. And so I wanted Build Better Products to have those activities in it. And so that's where it came from. That's what it is. And it's more aimed at, um, it's really aimed more at product managers than UX designers. 
although I think a lot of UX designers use it as well to kind of, you know, guide conversations and things. But uh, yeah, awesome. Well, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because I would think that, you know, lean UX for startups is really for UX folks, maybe finding their way in a startup and you know, not having the kind of time, money, resources that you might have at any other company. It's interesting that you bring up build better products is probably more for product managers. Let's dig into that a little bit more. You have played on sort of both sides of that fence or, or worn, you know, each hat, so to speak. What do you feel like is the difference between UX and product management? This is the hardest question to answer, and I'll tell you why. I don't think either job title means anything. Um, And by that, I mean at any given company, on any given team, it means a lot. And there is a lot of baggage and history and assumptions that go into any particular job at any particular company. And just having talked to a lot of different companies at a lot of different sizes, are there patterns? Yeah, absolutely. Is there an agreed upon definition of what each one does at any given company? Within the company, yeah, a lot of it. Across companies, no, none at all. Like the idea that being a product manager at, you know, a massive company that, you know, makes services or hardware, you know, the idea that they would be doing the same job as a product manager at, you know, even a mid-sized startup or a small startup. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not the same thing, right? And so, and the same with UX design. UX design is even worse because you can have UX designers at large companies that are all doing wildly different things anyway. So they're both such huge roles. The funny thing is with design, a lot of times I don't talk about even necessarily like UX design or you know, information architecture. I talk about it like, well, we're kind of like, it's kind of like saying you're a doctor. That's great. If I say I'm a doctor, you know roughly what I do. Or maybe you don't, right? Like, do you know if I work on feet or on hearts? or on, you know, the whole body, or if I do forensic medicine, or like, there's just lots of things you could do. Do we all have sort of a fairly common background? I think that's actually where the the analogy falls apart, is we don't all have the same sort of baseline knowledge even. And so that gets tricky. But even so, I think we can't decide what a UX designer is. We can't decide what a product manager is. I'm not about to tell you that, oh, the difference between the two is X. Who the hell knows? Figure it out, you know, at any at your particular company. Right. No, I love that. I, you know, I really appreciate your frankness with it too, because I think a lot of places take comfort in the definitions of these roles. Uh, and the reality of there is a ton of overlap. And what I've always told people, especially even in other roles in the past where I was maybe the UX person, and I come into an organization that has a product group, you know, already established. And they say, okay, well, so where do you sort of stop and we begin and where's the overlap and stuff like that? I say, look, what I try to do is get everybody around sort of a central goal. And I might be better at helping us meet a certain part of that goal than another function might be. And you're going to be better at meeting a part of that goal than uh, UX might be. And then when we figure that out, that's exactly where, you know, one of us stops and starts and ends and where we overlap. But that's, I think it's absolutely right. You got to get into that place, that team, those people, those human beings, and just figure out where people play really well, but making sure we're all sort of marching towards the the same thing is what's important. The funny thing is that places where I do see some patterns in sort of differentiation are places where I would rather there not be those patterns. Interesting. Which is, you know, sometimes you'll hear the like, oh, the, the UX designer is the champion of the user. 
and they should not care about the business model. They just, they champion the user and the product manager is the champion of the business and they're going to come together somehow. And I'm like, that's a really combative kind of situation. And also if in many cases, the product manager makes the final decision. So what you're basically saying is, well, then the business side is always going to win that fight because you've just set it up so that I have to go and fight against somebody who's actually in charge to get them to care about the user. And I just think that's absolute nonsense. Um, We should all be the advocates for the user. And at the same time, we should all have a very good understanding of how the company makes money and also the impact that we have on the rest of society and the impact that we have on our users and the society in which they live, in which we live, we all have to care about those things to make things that work together. We can't just outsource caring about the user to another person, you know, and I mean, it gets even worse in teams that have very siloed, you know, user research departments as well, because then it can very much be, oh no, the designer is quote, the champion of the user, but really they're getting all of their information about the user very secondhand and it's not like we're all doing all of this understanding together and making a thing together. We're all, we should all be rowing in the same direction. <laughs> and I don't think we can without an understanding of these fundamental things, the goal of the business, the context and goals of the users and also the impact to wider society. I think that just matters so much for everybody to care about. And unfortunately, like I said, that's where I see the split a lot of times. I love this. I think that that is such brilliant point that you illustrated really well that we absolutely need to dig into more to say or suggest that, well, I'm responsible for understanding our customers, our users. Also then, sort of like on the flip side of that coin suggests that somebody else doesn't have to care about understanding right. customers, which is nonsense. Uh-huh. It's complete nonsense, obviously, right? Yeah. So one of the things I want to dig into with that is I'm curious then, because you mentioned it specifically, user research and understanding customers, like that theme sort of was weaved into that point that you were making. Is that the place where the overlap from everybody should really be happening, right? Yes, in the fundamental understanding of the users. I have gotten into trouble in the past for implying that, you know, designers have to do all their own research, which, I mean, can you do it? Sure. I, I, that's how I learned. And yes, it is possible for some designers to do user research. And I also understand that we have other jobs and that's not always optimal. And so I think that there are places for specialists who can facilitate things like learning from the user. But I think the whole team needs to actually go out and learn from the user. Now, does that mean that, you know, we have the engineers out interviewing people? Not necessarily. (laughs) I mean, in some cases that's happened. In other cases, it's a terrible idea. I've been in those. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't all be involved in that user research process to certain degrees. We all have to understand. I'm Like I said, I'm including engineers. I'm including legal. I'm including finance in some companies, (laughs) definitely marketing, definitely sales, if you have those teams, definitely QA, if you have that, if you have that kind of luxury. Um, So if you don't understand who you're building for, and I mean this at a deeper level than just, oh, I read the persona doc, it's really hard to make good decisions about 
the things that you're going to be asked to make decisions about. And we all make decisions all the time about products and how they should work. We got to know the goal in the context of the user. And the way that we do that is hopefully by good user research. Now, having great user researchers who know how to get that information from users in the you know, safe, ethical, useful way is super important. And they're going to be the experts at that. But that doesn't mean that they're on their own to go off and like learn about the users and then they've just got to come back and tell you about it. Nobody reads those docs. I, used to, I know I used to write them. Absolutely. You know, quick side note on that. I don't want to undermine all, again, all of the great stuff that you just shared, but that's absolutely right. One of the things I tell people all the time is that you're waiting for people to have this big reaction to the reveal of the research report you wrote, and that's just never going to happen. That's somewhere on a shelf collecting dust or in somebody's email, and you're lucky they even opened it. I will say I did one, I was at one large company where I, I was brought in to do a big, you know, early user research report. And the reaction to the, the report was actually fantastic. We went around and we, our goal was um, we had to go around and, and socialize it, like, you know, with, with the senior vice presidents of the company. And we were taking it around to all that, you know, we would present it and do these big things. And even with that level, I mean, talk about not reading the report. Like this was not, that was not even the problem there. Even with that level, we're going around and we are selling the hell out of this thing and we are sharing it. The impact of that versus just having the team, having an, a semi-autonomous team that, that can actually make these decisions and make the design decisions based on it, having them involved in it. The senior vice presidents, great. They know about it. Fantastic. Does it really change anything? I mean, a teeny bit. But the team that's actually making the decisions on the ground having a really good understanding of the findings because they were there for it and they participated a lot, much bigger impact, just so much bigger. Yeah. I think that that's a huge deal. And, you know, something I want to ask you about, because uh, even before you went into that, I was going to ask you if there was a situation you could recall in the past where when everybody got rallied around this and was really part of it, as you're suggesting, there was a better outcome. It sounds like there was. So I guess my question now would actually turn to how did that end up, right? Like, what did you do when you say everybody was there for it, right? Like, what happened so that these people actually got the understanding that we did from research? So the one where we took it around and showed all the SVPs, nothing happened and I left the company because I realized that I was not going to have any impact. The one where we actually had people involved in the process in a much more direct way, I honestly had an engineer fix a really bad and longstanding bug in user research session because she saw it happen. Like she was there. She just fixed the bug. She saw the bug happen. She was like, oh, that is terrible. And just fixed it and pushed it. We were in a continuous deployment environment. And like later on, the person was trying to recreate the bug and couldn't. And I kind of looked back and she was like, it's fixed. <laughs> um, and I mean, that is the difference. And I know that that's kind of a small thing, but that happened repeatedly when we had other members of the team in research sessions actually watching the impact of what they were making. You know, bugs got fixed, obvious user experience problems, you know, got discussed intelligently. Um, people would talk about, oh, well, remember when we saw that thing, you know, in the session when that person had this horrible experience? And well, I mean, here are seven ways we could fix that, you know, from an engineering perspective. And just the engagement from the rest of the team and the people who were responsible for making some of these decisions was just so much greater. And some of the stuff, like I said, could be fixed inside a 
use a research session, which is amazing. It sounds to me like this was a case where they were actually observing it. Maybe you were doing usability testing, like it sounds like. And these people were just, they were just simply watching. They were observers of this. Mm-hmm. Yep, we did that a lot. Also, we would do sort of, we would cut together video roles of sessions that we'd done and share those as well. And those, those had a big impact in a very different way. Because then we would do them just at lunch. You know, we'd be like, okay, we're going to do a wrap up of some of the user learnings that we have. And you're going to watch videos of people going through the same. (laughs) Here are five people failing in the same place. (laughs) This is what you're doing to people. Are you okay with that? No, we're not. (laughs) And then they would fix it. So in this case, very tactical example of we have a product. We got it in front of people in a controlled way, did research on it, showed you the things we have to improve. Pretty clear, positive outcome on that. You were talking about earlier, you know, helping people in our company understand how the business can benefit from making decisions based on what we learned in research. That's a few steps higher up than just, we're going to fix this stuff in the app or in the product, right? Tell me about how that, how that works. So fundamentally, you have to learn how to navigate, I think, qualitative and quantitative research together. And, you know, I have been saying, I believe the first time I said this was in 2009, the qualitative research tells us why something happens and the quantitative research tells us what happens. So the combination of being able to look at some metrics and say, this is something that is happening, and then we need to do some qualitative research and probably fairly targeted to understand why that is happening. So are people falling off at a particular part of the funnel? Are people not doing a thing that we really expected that they would do? Are people not fully onboarding? Are people, you know, churning? You know, we need to then do targeted user research to understand what their needs are. And then we need to come up with a good hypothesis for that and try to fix it and then test it and see if it actually worked. That's, you know, roughly speaking, the scientific method. <laughs> and, you know, we, figure, we we come up with an idea like, oh, I think they're doing it because of X. Here's the trick. A lot of quant-only shops do it as, you know, they look at the, oh, people are falling off here. Well, let's start ideating and coming up with a bunch of reasons why they might be falling off here. And then we'll just come up with a solution or they just, or, or they even go straight to solutioneering, which is, oh, they're all falling off here. We should, it's like, no. What you should do here is you should figure out why it's happening. Because the second that you just start throwing, quote, fixes out into the world without having an understanding of what it is, like, you can't fix the number directly, right? You can't say, oh, everybody's falling off here. We're just going to fix that number. That, That doesn't make any sense. You have to understand what the user is going through that is causing them to behave in this way that you do not care for. You also have to, you know, think about is the thing that we're trying to get them to do fundamentally a good thing (laughs) that they should be doing more of? And is this a good number to even fixate on? That's a whole different conversation that we don't have to have right now, but it's important. You need to be doing those things. You need to be combining the qual and the quant together to come up with a true story about why you think somebody is doing something. And then you can use the quant to test your hypothesis. Yeah. This is a really, really important point. And I get actually asked this question a lot myself where people ask me then, how do you combine quant and qual data? And I think what you brought up there is uh, one of the most important things to talk about. So I think it's you know worth taking a moment to sort of explore a bit here. But when you mention 
you can try to dive into solutions of how to fix that number or see that thing stopping. You may be optimizing something that shouldn't exist, or you may be optimizing something that is uh, an indicator of a much larger problem. And so maybe you've plugged one hole in a leaky bucket, but there are actually eight other holes that you could have found by just simply asking the question, right? And so that's kind of one of the things that I've talked to people about. But when you've had to do this, I mean, can you share any stories of that where combining quant and qual data, you know, and how that happened? I've told this story before, but I continue to tell it because it is such a perfect encapsulation of just the funniest thing. I got brought on by a company who, it was a startup, and they were doing an onboarding. They had done an onboarding redesign, and they were very excited about the onboarding redesign because they felt that they had done it exactly correctly, which, and because I'd, and I'd worked with the CEO before, so I actually knew that he knew how to do this. And so it was sort of surprising when he was like, hey, I really need you to come, like we did this. You know, we actually talked to users, we understood their needs, we did all this stuff, and then, you know, we, we made it, and then we launched it, and it's worse than the old one, and we don't understand why. And so we want you to come in and we want you to redesign it entirely. You know, I was like, okay. So I looked at the two and I was like, hmm, yeah, um, the new one should be doing better. <laughs> like, as far as I can tell, just looking at it, this new one, I think you're right. I think this should be doing better. Let's figure out why it's not, <laughs> right? But they had very specific metrics that said it wasn't. In that case, we just did some observational testing with users on their own machines, and it very quickly became clear that they had a very simple bug that would not show up in their QA because it only happened on slightly slower machines a bit of a distance from the servers. It was absolutely destroying the experience, this one silly little bug that you know was just like a multiple-click thing. And I basically went back to them. I was like, you don't need me to redesign this whole thing. You need to fix this bug. <laughs> you can still pay me for the six weeks that you, you know, <laughs> hired me to fix your design. But I mean, the good news is that your design process worked perfectly. The bad news is that you didn't thoroughly test it. But here's the thing. The other option was much more expensive. I, we did some improvements to the, the ones that it wasn't like I just charged them for the six weeks. Um, I wouldn't do that. Um, I should have done that. <laughs> but uh, we, we actually did some optimizations to what they had. But, I mean, their first impulse was, well, we tried it the right way. Let's throw it all out and hire a really expensive designer to come in and redesign this thing. And that was not necessary. They could have just found the bug and fixed it. Would have saved them a lot of money. Right. Yeah. And that's such a big thing, right? It's like you found a number that's off. And so you can start mm -hmm. throwing solutions at it. Again, optimizing mm -hmm. for something that maybe shouldn't even be optimized, really. Yeah. Or It was great. It was, it was doing well. As soon as we fixed the bug, the numbers went right to what they had expected. And then, like I said, we were able to take it from there and improve it more. But at least we were starting from the new, better baseline as opposed to you know, well, we got to do it all over again. I mean, because I mean, if you had done it all over again and introduced that same damn bug, you would have you could have gone through this process to this day. Right. Well, they, they would have gone out of business before that, but you know. Right. Yeah, you would have kept making solutions to address this thing yep. that somewhere that you didn't know the problem. A one or a zero said is a problem, but you didn't know why it was a problem, and that's such that's such a big deal, is because you know, as you said it before, the number tells you what. Talking to people, doing more qualitative research tells you why, you know, you were able to come out the other end of that and saying, actually, the, th the what was correct. Good job. <laughs> it was a challenge in execution, perhaps, right? And in this case, a bug. So it helped you find that. Okay, awesome. 
I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier in this relationship between UX and product and business. What would you say to somebody, let's say this is a UX designer, a UX researcher, struggling with trying to understand where they fit in as that person in that role, a company that has an established product management practice, right? I know that this happens. People get hired on and maybe it's the first researcher and they come in and there's, there's actually a whole product management team and they come in and they say, I'm here to help you understand your users or your customers. And I have to believe that product managers go, that's nice. We've been doing that for a while, right? What advice would you give? It, some of them do. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen wild splits there, by the way. That's sure. just interesting. Yeah. Well, talk about that. I've seen both. I have seen the, yeah, we already know everything about our users. And sometimes that is actually true. And sometimes it is not. Um, I would say more often it is not. The other thing that I've seen, man, I love this is, oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, let's face it, product is hard, right? Like product managers are doing a lot of things. Not every, there aren't a lot of great, you know, product management schools or training programs. I know there are more now than there used to be, but there are still a lot of folks who get into product management who maybe don't have a great background in user research and, you know, who are doing the best they can or who do have a background, for example, in quant, but not in qual or in qual, but not in quant or whatever, or their background is, you know, engineering or something else. And they're really great at that part of the job. But again, product management has so many different things to it that nobody's an expert on all of it. So you do occasionally get the people who are like, <sighs> now you have to actually be a little careful with that when that happens, because you don't want to end up being, like I said, you know, oh, you're the person who knows everything about the user, because then it makes you very easy to ignore. <laughs> then they can just go on with, a lot of times people are like, oh, thank God we hired somebody to understand the user. Now we don't have to. No, that's not we don't have to change our behavior is not, in fact, the correct response to hiring somebody. You hire somebody to help you be better at things, not to be able to just offload it onto some other Porsche much. So that's, that is important. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I guess on that note, what advice would you give to somebody if they come into that situation? Might feel nice saying, oh, good, I'm so glad you're here, but there's the catch. So, so what advice would you give them to make sure that people don't get complacent? So I'm going to give you the advice that I should have taken much earlier in my career, but it turns out that I'm terrible with people. <laughs> I really am. I am legitimately awful at this. And so you know that it's good advice because it's worked some for me and it does not come naturally. Treat your coworkers like your users because they are. Your coworkers use the products of your work in different ways. So if you are especially a designer, I would say designers are very good at this. I think researchers are great at the, and again, this is huge, wild generalizations. Everybody's good at different stuff. But generally speaking, people who have done research are very good at getting out and understanding what people's needs are. Great. Apply that to your coworkers. Your engineers, it turns out, are people. I know we don't always seem like it, but we are. <laughs> I say that as a person who is probably about a third robot, but just like... Many of them are delightful. That's all I'll say. <laughs> so get to know them. Understand what their needs are. Understand how they do things. Same with your product people. Understand who they are, what their goals are, what their needs are. Great. If you're a designer or if you, you know, use research to design things or to change opinions or whatever, figure out what the best way is for your coworkers to achieve their goals 
while also incorporating the important things that you are doing. It is a design problem. It is so funny to me, and I mean, I was terrible at it too. It is so funny to me that designers feel like our job is different when we're designing products than when we're designing relationships with coworkers, that we're going to treat these two groups of people like, oh, I have to like learn and understand users, but I have to convince and, you know, influence coworkers. No. <laughs> it turns out you have to learn, understand, convince, and influence both groups of people. As a designer, your job is to change user behavior. That's a lot of convincing and influencing, and it's done in a very subtle way through interfaces. That's the thing that you do all the time. So, yeah, anyway, your coworkers are your users. They use the stuff you make. Treat them as such. Yep, I love it. I echo the same sentiment. We've had other guests in the past talk about this very thing, and it yet is still something we as an industry are not super good at, which is, let's see, Christina Woodkey has said this, Jim Callback has said this. There's literally so many people we've had on the show that said the same thing in various ways of just basically saying, understand how your business works. Understand how the people you're working with and for work, what they're trying to do. Just as you're saying again now, and it bears repeating because it is so important for the success of anybody working, I would say, in product, in UX, in research, any of those areas, to just say, employ the same kind of empathy and understanding with the people you work with and for as you do or claim to do with the people you make things for, right? Our customers. It's funny that you mentioned Christina Woodkey. She and I have probably yelled this at each other over wine and pedicures, which we <laughs> used to do on a regular basis back when we could see one another in person and hope to do again very soon in the future. <laughs> I would love to actually hear a lot more about that, but I don't, <laughs> but I don't think that we have. That's the whole thing. We just we get together for wine and pedicures and then yell about user stuff. It's great. It's fun. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I want to take a, a different angle on this. We talked about if you're a UX person or a UX research person and you come in into that scenario where product is established, let's let's talk about reverse. Let's say the company is doing UX, maybe even UX research, and then you come in as a product manager and you say, cool, I'm here to drive the strategy and let everybody know what the UX should be and what things should get made. I mean, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's bad. Don't, yeah. don't do that. That's, your job as the product person is not to come in and tell everybody what they should be making. Your job as the product person, I think, is to come in and understand where the team needs help, what resources they're lacking, and help facilitate making those decisions and help clear away some of the many obstacles that are probably in people's way. But I mean, if you have, like, you have to figure out what's, what's missing. Is your team not using enough quant data to, you know, understand things? Are they using too much? That is also a thing. There are lots of things you cannot figure out with quant, even in the what, like you just don't see them because they're outliers or whatever, and they're super important. So you need to come in and understand what's missing and help figure out how to fill that. That is a big part, I think, of product management and why it's such a weird, scattered job that has no specific meaning. <laughs> and I know that there are lots of people who come to say, no, this is what product managers should do. And, you know, good for them. But like most of them have been consulting for the last 20 years and haven't actually gone in and led a product and seen that oh no, actually, you've got people on this team who are really good at some of the things that you think product managers should do, and maybe we should let them do it. And maybe we should work on filling the other holes. 
Yeah, I think that that's a really, really good point that you just made there with product management too. And we kind of started our conversation with, you know, what is the difference between UX research, product management? And it's all going to, you know, your mileage may vary. It's going to be different, I think, in every situation. But one of the things you just said there, I think really nails it for me. I'm going to try to summarize it back as, as a product manager, I feel like that role is almost synthesizing everything that's happening with the product. Whereas, you know, your job then is bringing together people who are experts in all the different parts of the product. So people who are great designers and making that interface, people who are great researchers and understanding the nuanced behavior and how that applies to all this stuff, people who are great at building it and the technology and how to use it and how to make it fast, you know, all that stuff. And then you as the product manager, you don't need to necessarily be the expert in all or any of those areas, but rather be a person that says, okay, I'm helping to bring all this together and gel it into one cohesive direction. And really what you're doing is borrowing from all of those and helping people see each other's uh, different sides, right? How, how do you feel about heist movies? I love heist movies. I'm going over this, as do I. You will see why in a second. Well, I think that the analogy came because I do very much enjoy heist movies. And I love the person who goes out and gathers up the team for one last big score, right? Like those are the, absolutely the best ones. Like this is the one that we're, we're all going to retire to, you know, to some private island. It'll be fantastic. And what does that person do? They go out, they gather, they get the best safe cracker. They get the best, you know, getaway driver. They get the best, there's always the tech person who's, you know, get all the alarms turned off and all of that. You know, you've got the muscle, you've got everything. You've got to have a little bit, you know, you got the con artist who can go out and get all the things that you need. I've watched maybe perhaps too many of these. Anyway, that's a product team, right? And the person who's getting the gang back together is in many ways, their goal is they stand up at the front of the room and they say, okay, look, here's our goal. Here's the bank we're going to hit. And we're going to hit it. We got to hit it on a Thursday because we've done some research and we know that that's when the new gold bullion comes in. And, you know, this, they've got this whole, like, this is why we're doing it. This is the strategy. This is, you know, we've, we understand that this is, we have found a market need. Um, and that market need is for us to steal a bunch of gold bullion from this one bank. And, you know, here's the setup and here's how it all is. They're not going to tell the safecracker how to crack the safe. Right, but they're going to help the safecracker find out what kind of safe it is, and maybe to do that they need to work with the con artist to go in and actually get the information about the safe. I am getting way too in detail about this analogy, but I really want to write this movie. I swear to God, this is a product team. I have a whole chapter in my book about how we should make heist teams, right? Where your job as the product manager is to to set the goal, to have a really good understanding. You have to know what everybody's doing. And you have to help them do it. But you're not the expert in those things. And you should never be overriding the safe cracker about how to crack a safe. You should be helping them figure out the best way to do it and getting them what they need to do it. As a person who really loves analogies, I am a big fan of how you just related that to everybody listening. And I do want to say the details of that were getting pretty specific. So I also want to throw out a disclaimer that the Aurelius podcast can't be responsible for any bank <laughs> knockovers that Let we me see. explain now the details of the bank <laughs> down the street. No, okay. Yeah. No, that's, that's, <laughs> I, I love I have in no way actually run a heist team per se. I just want to put that out on the record that this is not from, this is entirely from movies and books. Yes. All of my understanding of actual heist teams. And no animals were harmed in the making of this podcast <laughs> and all. Well, if we needed an animal trainer, I know a guy. 
<laughs> well, I was going to say, what's the line at the end of the movie? Is All correlations to real names and places yeah. are completely uh, are, are coincidental. Yeah, yeah, completely coincidental. <laughs> no, so this is a really awesome analogy because, because what you're saying is like the product manager is really like kind of taking on leadership of that group, but each of those people are experts in it. And I think the interesting thing to bring up is anybody who's seen a heist movie, sometimes the con artist or the safe cracker or whoever it might be does team up with the leader person. Yeah. And they're kind of working together on setting that strategy or making decisions, but they're not butting heads. I mean, there's a, always a synergy. Well, most of them are criminals, so sometimes there is there are conflicts that arise, but that's a movie. <laughs> and that's perfect. life. I mean, this is a good team, right? Like, we're talking about a good team that's like, they've hit some banks before. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the most important things that you said there, at least for me, was pulling out that thread of you never try to overwrite the safe cracker on how to crack the safe. You identify the safe, you identify that a safe needs broken into, and then you trust that person to make expert decisions on that action. But really what you did is you brought it all together to say, well, if we're going to do this job, it's got to be A, B, C, and D. D is your part, and here's where it is, here's what we know about it, get after it. I can actually get even weirder on this analogy. I, I can literally talk about this for hours, so you will have to cut me off. But I will say this, like sometimes what you find is that the safe cannot be cracked in place. And that is the thing that you find. And you, as the product manager, it is up to you to work with other members of your, of your team or bring in other members you know, who would be useful. So for example, maybe at that point, you talk to the getaway driver about, can we move the whole safe, right? But And you need to put the safe cracker with the getaway driver and you need to make that connection and they need to figure out if that's a thing that can happen together. Right. And so you're also facilitating the communication between the experts on your team and helping them to come up with brilliant solutions that actually will work. And, you know, sometimes you're honestly making the decision, well, it's going to have to be a different bank. Yeah, it's going to have to be a different bank, which it translated to our role. At least I'm taking as we got to make a different feature or we're not making yeah, the right product. That feature. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is wrong and we need to pivot. Yeah, this is not a. Yeah. Well, so this is actually really, really good because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is then, you know, in what ways does research play a part in that? It does. We, we're talking about how research plays a part in making very tactical decisions. But in that case, you know, research very well can help us make those decisions as well. Like, A, we're not even making the right thing or we've got to pivot pretty hard. And I think you used that word earlier, too. Yes, you have the, the big strategic stuff. You have the, you have, well, oh God, we're going to extend this metaphor. Let's see how far it'll go without breaking. You've got the early generative research, right? Yeah. Do we want to hit a bank? Do we want to hit a train? You know, do we know anything about, you know, what, how bearer bonds get moved back and forth? Like you have to have that sort of fundamental domain knowledge of, are we going after currency? Are we going after gold? Are we going after bonds? Like, you know, what is it? Okay, so it's always going to be Krugerrands. Um, so what kind of thing are we going after? So that's the big generative stuff, right? And in some cases, that's market research, just understanding the domain. Then there's the sort of more generative, but still slightly targeted of, okay, it's a bank, which bank? We think it's this one because of X, Y, and Z. Well, you figure that out with research. You watch the bank, you understand, you know, you maybe get a, a man on the inside to understand what their security procedures are. You've got to do all of, you know, you're doing contextual inquiry in that case. <laughs> so, and then there's the real specific stuff of, hey, we need to know what model the safe is. Then, you know, the safe cracker can go off actually and do specific research into that model of safe, which then you're getting into, you know, the technical 
feasibility of a particular feature, right? Which is that kind of research is actually tends to be done by the engineers or safe crackers. I think we did it. I think we extended the metaphor. I'm satisfied with it for sure. <laughs> I got to ask you now because we stretched the limits of the heist movie metaphor for a UX product and research. I got to ask you, what's the, what's your favorite heist movie then? Don't make me choose. <laughs> you can pick. Actually, All right. I, I, what are your top three? Oh man. No. See, I really, so the funny thing is that I really like con artist movies as well. And so I tend to kind of conflate them a little bit. So, you know, like The Sting, obviously, I loved The Italian Job. Um, I liked, you know, Ocean's Eleven. I liked all the kind of, you know, obvious ones. There was, mm-hmm. God, there was a there was a David Mamet that I'm not remembering the name of. Might have just been called Heist that I think I really enjoyed. It's been a while. I haven't seen very many recently. So it's a, it's a tough question. There's a really silly show that was on called White Collar mm-hmm. that had the funny thing is the first season was just, every single episode was just a different classic con and it being executed and it like with all the names and everything like oh that's the drop or that's you know so that was actually really fun because it had all of you know i'm like oh yeah no i read about that one oh yeah no that one's based on a an actual diamond heist that happened in the world (laughs) i'm sort of obsessed with it this is awesome all right i realize we're coming to the end of our time and i want to be respectful of that for you so one thing i do want to ask you is like if I got knocked on the head really hard and forgot most of what we talked about or all of what we talked about and you wanted me to remember, you wanted the folks listening to remember one thing, what would you think is the most important thing that we discussed as the key takeaway? I mean, I think the most important thing that you can do is just treat your coworkers like users in that you really want to understand them and understand their needs and understand that your deliverables to them are a product and treat them as such. Awesome. I think that's excellent, excellent advice. It's something that Some of the smartest people I have talked to now, including you, have said, and everybody should take note, you know, whether you're on the UX, the research or the product side, just understand we're all trying to do the same thing. The better we understand that, the better we can help each other. It's very, very sound advice. Laura, I'm curious, is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you'd want to share with people? Maybe things you got going on or you kind of want to mention? Well, I have a podcast myself, which is called What is Wrong with UX? The podcast where two old ladies yell at each other about how to make products suck slightly less is the tagline. And also, I am currently working for Interaction Design Foundation, and I am creating a course on how to be a better designer on an agile team. So I'm doing lots and lots of research about agile teams and how they work together well and, you know, how we can do better agile heists. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Very cool. Go and check that out. If anybody wants to to reach out to you, I'm sure they can find you there. And the podcast I know is linked from your site and, and other areas. So uh, we'll have links to that on the in the show notes for this episode as well. Laura, really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us about UX, research, product strategy, heist movies, and all of the things under that umbrella. All the things. It was lovely talking with you. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Laura, and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. So you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. 
Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.